the masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last post just That's true, Dr. Sayers. Very well. Where would we be without THC? Because we know they're lying to us, just don't know to what degree. Yeah, where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show, Greg Carwood Company. All right, higher side chatters, it's clear to me that the mind control, propaganda, and disinformation dials have been turned up to 11 in a culture that seems more erratic, polarized, and on edge than it has been in some time. Yes, it seems like we are a society of lab rats deep into finely tuned experiments and manipulation that have been refined with billions of dollars over many decades. And with a constant bombardment of information aimed at keeping our palms sweaty and the heart rate high... It's increasingly nauseating to navigate between the latest presidential reality show tweet fest and the daily reports on Hollywood's latest sacrificial lamb of sexual misconduct. It's classic sleight-of-hand tabloid culture masquerading as real news in an era where the machine is only getting more efficient and the screws are only getting tighter. So today I wanted to bring back a guest we had way, way back in the beginning of the Higher Side Archive almost exactly three years ago, and that guest is Neil Sanders. Neil is a longtime researcher and expert in the dark art of mind control who holds degrees in film studies, psychology, and media production, as well as being a qualified hypnotherapist. He's also the author of the one-two punch that is his dual-volume set, Your Thoughts Are Not Your Own, with volume one being subtitled Mind Control, Mass Manipulation, and Perception Management, and volume two, Marketing, Movies, and Music. But that's not all, folks. He's also here hot on the heels of his latest release, a 500-plus page, 200,000-word tome covering the life, times, and trial of Charles Manson entitled Now's the Only Thing That's Real, a re-examination of the Manson murders, motives, and mythos, which I'm sure we'll also be talking about. But let's get this party started, people. Researcher extraordinaire, beacon of light in the darkest of dark worlds, Neil Sanders, welcome back to the higher side. (laughs) Thank you very much. Yeah, man. It's a real pleasure to have you back. I always considered you one of my favorite guests from the early days. And I went back and listened to that show we did three years ago just to see how things have changed. And pretty much everything we talked about then is even more concerning now. Social media controlling our lives, sexual abuses by the privileged class, propaganda and entertainment. And I guess to get us started, I would just ask how you feel about things today compared to a few years ago. Are you at all surprised at the current climate, or is it just as you might have expected since writing Your Thoughts Are Not Your Own? Well, to be quite honest, I'm rather surprised by the way that the internet is being used, in as much as basically quite a lot of people are spreading quite a lot of rubbish around on the internet. There's a lot of sites that have popped up, for example, like Neon Nettle is a prime example that just basically print lies. And it's, you know, it's a business venture. You can't really knock them. Well, you can knock them, <laughs> especially when you, you're dealing with subjects like sexual abuse, child abuse, that type of thing. Spreading stuff that is basically red herrings is despicable, actually. Doing it purposefully. For some reason, people don't seem to be honed in on the fact that all the same elements that exist in the mainstream media, the sort of propaganda techniques, the manipulation techniques, the astroturfing, be that, you know, fake heroes, fake gurus, fake grassroots activism programs and and, uh, the like, that exists in the realm of the internet, probably more so than in the mainstream media, to be quite honest. And yeah, 
it is astonishing. It, it's still surprising, actually, how many people are just completely beholden to the mainstream news and to all that sort of nonsense. Like Prince Harry was in the city where I live recently, and people were going absolutely batshit for it. Mm-hmm. Like the people that I took to be otherwise sensible were really, really thrilled at the uh, prospect of this illegitimate, systematic disenfranchising git turning up and spending some of our money. <laughs> Yeah, standing ovations for the elite class are something I'll never understand. And I do think you're right. There are so many sites popping up. And what really sucks is that a lot of times this material, this fake stuff they're putting out there is conspiracy related material. So that just clearly makes us look bad. It makes me look bad. Uh, I try to be vigilant, but obviously I've gotten caught on some traps as well. I mean, it's a pretty well-oiled machine. It's hard not to. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what I meant by that was it's not the people that are sort of, you know, being tricked by it. That's the point of propaganda is to trick people. It's it's the people that have actively set up these nodes to spread this information. I mean, but there's also, you know, that's how you poison somebody. You don't put it on a plate with a flag on it that says poison. You put it in a favorite <laughs> meal. You know, it's supposed to be a clandestine manipulation of of information. Like one of the ones that I don't understand why anybody trusts at all is is Russia today is RT, hmm. and and they're very again very very skilled at it because they basically put out about you know a degree of truth. They, they they put out a lot of sort of things that wouldn't be covered in the the mainstream media. The only problem with Russia today, well, there's many problems with Russia today, but it's you know it's Kremlin based. You know it's the direct line of the Russian government, and its tentacles stretch to the FSB, which used to be the KGB. It's, you know it's a very very sophisticated propaganda machine Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore it's not to be trusted amen man and god i really hate to contribute to the constant rehashing of the american election cycle a year after it happened but you were one of the first guests i had that brought up jeffrey epstein in detail and i just find it so crazy that we had this election between two people so closely associated with an international pedophile both sides seem to have blinders on when we're talking about the supporters They have blinders on when it comes to the crimes of their own candidate. But when it comes to the inner circle of the actual president, it seems like those links go pretty deep, don't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, Trump was a a longtime friend of Jeffrey Epstein. The story that everybody sort of like that popularized Jeffrey Epstein, I mean, he'd already been convicted of pedophilia before this. But basically, it was when that young girl, the 15-year-old masseuse, Virginia Roberts, was hired by uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And she worked for Mar-a-Lago, which is Trump's golf club in Florida, I believe it is. That's where Virginia worked, age 15. That's where she met Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine Maxwell introduced to Jeffrey Epstein. And Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine <laughs> Maxwell have been good friends with Trump probably since the, the 90s. The most sort of damning quote is, in 2002, Trump told New York Magazine, I've known Jeff for 15 years. He's a terrific guy. He's lots of fun to be with. He even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. No doubt about it, Jeffrey enjoys his social life. Like, I'm very aware that Bill Clinton was on the Lolita Express and that his name appeared apparently on the flight records, uh, I forget whether it's 19 or 22 times, an incriminatingly large amount of times. But from the very, very same source, that, as far as I'm aware that that came from, which was Mark Epstein, which is Jeffrey Epstein's brother, it is also confirmed that Donald Trump was on that same Lolita Express at least twice. In 2009, Donald Trump was subpoenaed to give a deposition on Epstein. But the subpoena was withdrawn when 
Trump negotiated to give a voluntary statement to the police that would be held out of the court proceedings. But it was proven in this subsequent court case that Trump called Epstein's Palm Beach estate at least twice from his private line in November 2004. In Vanity Fair 2002, it was shown that Trump regularly dined at Epstein's Palm Beach estate. He admitted this in, in an interview. In the New York Magazine in 2003, Trump was shown to be dining at Epstein's Manhattan home, and he said that this was a regular occurrence. Yeah, it's totally, totally shady. The other connection with the inner circle of Trump is Mark Collins' rector and Brock Pierce. Mark Collins' rector and Brock Pierce. Well, when Mark Collins' rector was a known paedophile in 2004, when he'd already been charged with molestation of a child and escaped to Spain and been brought back by international police, in 2004, Mark Collins' rector and Brock Pierce started a business with Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, the former aide to the president and knows to Breitbart. Breitbart, which is owned by Robert Mercer. Robert Mercer is the main financier of the Trump campaign and the employer of people like Kellyanne Conway and various other people like that. Um, he's a very, very sort of prominent white nationalist as well, to be quite honest. Hmm. Yeah, it is just fascinating to me that both camps would be so closely associated with a guy like this. And our country is so polarized over here that we really suffer from this whataboutism where it's like, well, you want to point out my side did this. Well, what about that? And it's like, how about both sides are criminal? How about both sides abuse children? Like, come on. I thought we were over this left and right paradigm thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, to be quite honest, I think part of the reason for that is, is due to very, very clever marketing. And this this has been done. I think basically is is actually been done with the help of the American government. It's it it's really down to a, a company called Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica is a data mining firm. It basically it, it's owned by Robert Mercer, the chief financier of Donald Trump, and the owner of Breitbart, who's the employer of Milo Yiannopoulos and Steve Bannon, and also Kellyanne Conway. Basically, what they did was they merged with a company called SCL, which is a former British military intelligence psychological warfare organization that deals specifically with directing influence and you know psychological operations it, it's often been utilized to sort of do soft coups in sort of african countries and, and things like that and it has direct connections to the pentagon british military intelligence the british secret service marconi defense systems the u.s marines and the u.s military and i believe i said the pentagon already but also directly to the white house what happened was basically the Trump campaign employed, and actually the Brexit campaign, employed this data mining firm to micro-target people and figure out what was making them tick. What they did was they bought all your Facebook data, they bought all your Twitter data, and they bought all your data from WhatsApp and Instagram and stuff like that. And they basically trawled through it using algorithms to figure out what you liked and what you didn't like. And they micro-targeted you, and they basically created sock puppet accounts and started conversations with you and sent you fake news articles, all directly, specifically to get you rolled up and to get you directed towards supporting a specific candidate. And I think that they very cleverly took advantage of the fact that people are massively, massively disengruntled. And they said the right things. They talked about people being disenfranchised and they talked about the elites. But it was you know, it was a lie. You know, it, it's just words. You know, for example, Donald Trump is, for a start, he's bloodline. He's related to the Clintons. 
there's enough dirt on Donald Trump and his connections to the mafia, and, and as we spoke about before, connections to Epstein, for the mainstream media or for the Democrats to absolutely destroy him, and yet they haven't chosen to do that. It's all for show. It's all nonsense. It's, it, it's all a complete facade. It's just there to give you the impression that basically somebody's fighting for the little man. It's the utilisation of nationalism and xenophobia, hatred of other people, all stoked together with genuine fears about economic worries and heightened fears of things like terrorism and stuff like that. Again, like with all good propaganda, a nice dollop of the truth, talking about basically how elites are, are, are ripping you off. No talk about how Trump has got like you know a history of ripping off little people, destroying small businesses, not paying contractors, that type of thing. As you say, I don't quite understand why there is this sort of level of emperor's new clothes about this guy. I think a lot of it is to do with the media nodes, as I said, like not only on Facebook and stuff like that, subconsciously manipulating you towards a specific candidate, which has basically been admitted by the utilization of military industrial complex level psychological warfare organizations that just so happen to favor the wants and needs of the elites. Hmm. Not only that, but through their media, through Breitbart, which is owned by the very same people, through Judge Report and other outlets like that, basically get their media from the same reporters. Certainly from Infowars, that basically took an incredibly large step to the right, just about the same time that its production values went through the roof, which didn't <laughs> seem to jive with what was going on in Alex Jones's private life, which probably would have been terribly, terribly expensive for him at the time. But he shifted got a new demographic, and then immediately got sort of access to the president-elect, which is an unprecedented media coup. At one point, there was talk about them actually being allowed into the White House, into the press pack and stuff like that. I don't think they got that. But I, I wouldn't at all be surprised if there was a certain amount of quid pro quo that was going on behind the scenes in order to set up this candidate and set up a continuing and expanding media career for some of these people involved in these particular outlets. Mm hmm. Great points, man. And those things probably help to explain why a lot of the conspiracy world does seem to have this savior thing going on when they're thinking about Trump. It's like I've heard from many guests, they'll say things like, well, it seems like Trump's finally going to do something about X, Y or Z. It's like I'm always disappointed in that misplaced trust. I've had guests saying that he's going to put an end to pedophile networks. He's going to roll back vaccines. He's going to stop geoengineering. All that sort of stuff. And it doesn't make sense to me. And you make a great point about InfoWars. I could say the same about Red Ice. It seems oh, like God, alternative yeah. media shows, they just turn into right-wing shows all of a sudden. And I, it's something I don't understand and something I'm trying to uh, work against. Well, as I say, I genuinely think that it's down to the influence of two people, essentially. Robert Mercer, who I you know, keep mentioning, was the main financier of Donald Trump and is essentially the person who is behind Breitbart and Mia Yiannopoulos and Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway and various other things like that. He's a hedge fund manager and he has a dream of an all-white utopia in America. The other person is a multi-millionaire called William Rotary II or William Rotary Third, I believe it might be. He basically is another incredibly wealthy aristocrat that lives in America, very, very influential and he has a dream of an all-white utopia in America. This is a theme that seems to run through this. He basically he owns the, the Charles Martel Society and the, the NCL, which I forget what that stands for, but these are basically right-wing think tanks 
And one of their major protégés who's funded out of there is Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer is the gentleman that has the stupid swept to the left lesbian's haircut <laughs> and got punched on the face by the bloke in the mask. He coined the phrase alt-right. William Rochemont II also basically financed a series of books that were put out to help Donald Trump. Well, no, it was, it was a, a book that was sponsored by Donald Trump and he basically financed this and put it out prior to the election. It was, you know, it was all just, you know, soft propaganda for, for Donald Trump. But he also organized phone campaigns and, and also, you know, blanket media campaigns in order to basically encourage people to vote for Donald Trump as well. So we can see that these very wealthy, wealthy people, they want Trump to be the candidate. Now, it's, it's an interesting, you know, maybe some of these people are right. Maybe he did genuinely want to do this and blah, 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 and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't believe he did, but maybe. Who knows? But he's not the guy. He's the front man. You know, he's the window dressing. Right. There's been essentially an attempted, I know it sounds a bit melodramatic, but there's been an attempted right-wing coup behind the scenes in, in America with a shift. It's just people jostling for position. And, you know, the chaos that ensues from Trump and the chaos that is going to ensue, certainly in an economic and a business sense, from Brexit, is going to benefit greatly people, hedge fund managers, people like William, sorry, Robert Mercer. The other person that Robert Mercer pays for is Nigel Farage mm. of uh, UKIP. In fact, the reason that Breitbart set up an office in London was to promote UKIP propaganda. He's also behind or finance or helped through Cambridge Analytica, quite illegally, I might add, leave EU and EU.leave and all basically all the main hard Brexit campaigns that were promoted by people like Nigel Farage during that time. So this is what I find very troubling about this, and it kind of ties in with this concept of the internet, is that basically at the minute, we're seeing a lot of people that are purporting to be champions of the people. Nigel Farage is, is a former trust fund manager. He's like he's a multimillionaire. He's not a man of the people. Mm -hmm. He lives for a lot of the time out of the country. All of his rhetoric is just nonsense. He's just basically, again, saying the things that people want to hear, because essentially he's justifying, he's saying, Oh, you know what? That this is wrong with the world, and this is wrong with the world, and this is wrong with the world, and this is wrong with the world. Yes, you're absolutely right. You know whose fault it is? Who's who's? Those people over there, those disenfranchised people. Now, here's the interesting thing about a target. You've always got to find a target that is different enough and powerful enough for you to be afraid of them. So we don't. We know just enough of them to know that they exist, but we don't know enough about them so that we're not terrified of them. And they've got to be perceived to be powerful enough to destroy the entire planet. And yet they're so weak that somehow they don't really have any campaign or, or platform to make a counter argument to any of these points, which seems very, very sort of counterintuitive to, to the rhetoric. But yeah, you know, this is the point that these are very, very wealthy people with ties to the military industrial complex in both the UK and America. And I'm not saying that people didn't have a good reason or a good thought behind why they voted for Brexit, or for why they voted for Trump. But the strange and provable fact is, as I say, these multimillionaires, billionaires, and corporations with links to the military-industrial complex, the White House, the Pentagon, the US Marines, Marconi Defense Systems, UK military psychological operations, warfare departments, wanted you to vote that way. Well said, man. And you know, we're both in our 30s, and it just seems to me that there has been a real synergy to the Bush-Clinton, Bush-Obama years 
And that does seem to have changed. And you mentioned the idea of a coup, something a lot of guests here have talked about. And there's clearly a lot of stuff being thrown at us. It can be really hard to sift down to what's important. But what do you think are the main goals behind this administration? What's the real game behind the game here when it comes to the jockeys that have been riding the Trump horse? Well, it's difficult to say. The bottom line is money. There's a couple of things that basically, this doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it's an observation, okay? Who actually benefits greatly from the breakup of the EU and potentially the breakup of NATO? This is going to sound pretty like, oh, Christ, you know, that's like Russia. I don't necessarily think that that's, there's something going on. This, this whole thing is tied in, I think, to the pipeline that's going through the Ukraine. And I don't know exactly what it is, but that's what Paul Manafort was there doing. And I don't think it's Trump per se. I think, as I say, it's the people behind Trump. There's some benefit that will basically, if there's chaos in Europe and there's chaos in America, that basically the, the sanctions will get lessened or perhaps that something will happen whereby this pipeline that, that is going through the Ukraine will actually become more operational and Russian companies will make a shed load of money. That's essentially why the UK and the US engineered a coup in the Ukraine to try and prevent this pipeline from going on. So what I wonder, and again, I, this is not necessarily what I think, but it's an observation that I think you know there's enough indicators to go, well, that might be a possibility. Somebody's dicking about just in essence to try and get this pipeline done because behind the scenes, they're going to make a huge amount of money. We've already seen that Paul Manafort actually made a huge amount of money by basically being pro-Russian in Ukraine. And I've been saying this for ages, that that's essentially what Syria is about and Georgia is about. These are proxy wars against Russia, but it's not really for anything other than economic reasons. It's for gas pipelines and, and that type of thing. Is this actually connected to this? Well, I mean, that's possibly the sort of the suggestion that's been put around by the mainstream media, which, you know, I usually am loath to go along with. But I've actually been saying that for ages, but I don't think it's Trump. I think it's Mercer. I think it's other people that's behind him that actually would be the main beneficiaries of this type of specific action. As to anything else more than that, as I've stated before, the people behind this particular movement and this particular administration have an extremely right-wing bent. And certainly the financiers of these movements have spoken on many occasions of wanting an all-white ethno-state in, in America, which is, you know, ludicrous. But this is what they've said. Is that their intention? No idea. Is it really anything to do with Russia? No idea. These are just, you know, observations that, that I have. I, I said recently on Rich Pine show, like, Trump's obviously a front man. Like, I think that basically he's just a, an idiot, an arrogant idiot that was convinced that he could do this. And mm -hmm. I think on the side, he's probably made a few dodgy deals to advance him because he's a businessman. And that's the sort of guy that he is. You know, there's any number of possibilities as to, to why Trump was what the ultimate goal is. Is he malleable? Is he, is he, you know, easily controllable behind the scenes? Uh, is he the sort of person that can get away with anything? He can act like an idiot, kind of in the way that George Bush did. And then people sort of give him a pass, like, you know, it's old, stupid Donald again or whatever. Like, did you notice the second that George Bush stopped being president, he suddenly became the most articulate and witty person that you've ever met in your entire life? <laughs> like, it was ridiculous. Yes. I mean, obviously, like, he's still on the source, like when it, it was at that memorial and he, 
tried to start a can-can with Michelle Obama. He's not to be trusted, <laughs> but it was a marketing ploy, I think, for him to act quite as stupid as he did during the, the time of his presidency. And so you've always got to be aware of these potential angles, as you say. Anything that they're showing you, it, it's all for show. It's all they want you to see it. Somebody wants you to see this. You know, mm-hmm. the stuff that they can cover up is ludicrous. So it's very, very suspicious when, as you say, like people are propped up to be champions of the people or whatever. I, uh, you know, I'm a circle, I'm miserable misanthrope, so I constantly just <laughs> rubbish. But it is very, very powerful and very, very alluring because they're telling you everything that you want to hear, to be quite honest, and they're doing it in a very, very, very clever way. But they're doing it also with the help of really, really sophisticated military psyops. Yeah, man, it's just games within games, as always. And as someone who's covered the entertainment industry so greatly, how do you feel about these almost daily reports of sexual abuse of varying degrees, whether it's Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose, Louis C.K., Al Franken? I mean, there's clearly something happening here, but is there a deeper agenda or goal behind this flood of accusations? It seems somewhat targeted or like it might be some type of smokescreen, or is it genuine? Who knows? I mean, it's certainly horrific, and I don't wish to make light of it, but as a lot of people were saying, like, specifically, it was never a secret with Harvey Weinstein. A lot of these rooms, the Louis C.K. stuff's been out for ages, but then again, some of the Bill Cosby stuff that had been out for years in the rumor mill. It's nothing new. Again, I'm not trying to diminish the criminal activity that's gone, gone on. I'm just pointing out that basically Hollywood and all the industry, essentially, works to a degree on power and, and sexuality. Like, James Dean was a rent boy before he was big in Hollywood. Marlon Brando was, I believe, did casting couch type things with men. I could be wrong about that. Marilyn Monroe famously said that she spent the majority of her auditions on her knees. There's always been fixes in Hollywood. I'd suggest that people look into a, a really fascinating character called Eddie Mannix. And he was basically one of these people that, that made scandals go away. You know, Bette Davis or any of these people got pregnant. He would be the person that arranged their secret abortion. If starlets were homosexual, he would basically um, arrange for them to be married off to other people and, you know, to promote their public profile. He even ran to the extent of covering up a murder and a rape. Two separate incidents. In one instance, Clark Gable ran a lady over and killed her. In another instance, he... uh, raped a girl, got her pregnant, and Eddie Maddox not only managed to cover up the crime, but also successfully got the girl to have an abortion. This was in the 40s and 50s. There is all manner of things that that Hollywood would go to 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 cover up. It's very strange how this thing came out. I can't remember exactly what the spark to the Harvey Weinstein scandal was off the top of my head. I don't know if you can, can you, Greg? I can't remember the actress's name, but it was just one actress who came out and then the floodgates opened. Hmm. I mean, you know, I don't doubt his story, to be quite honest. It's interesting. Somebody was pointing out this. All these girls that have come out and said, blah, blah, blah. It's interesting to notice ones that have kept quiet about this. Like, because, you know, you could speculate that this is common practice. It's horrific. It happens in all, all walks of life. There's no specter of powerful industry where people don't take advantage of people. Hollywood is particularly dangerous, and the music industry, because of the rewards that it promises. They don't actually you know, give you these rewards a lot of the time. 
it's actually horrific. Like, for example, let me give you an idea, Ravi. How alluring is the music business and the film industry and stuff like that? I was reading these articles, really quite old, but still very, very interesting article by Courtney Love the other day. She's talking about basically if you're a band, like you're a four-piece band, and you get signed and you get a million-dollar advance, that's essentially a loan for a start. Half of it goes to your manager immediately. Half of it goes to various other production agents and, and the like. And some of it goes towards recording of your album. Basically, you left at the time with about $45,000 per person to live on for the rest of your life, essentially, until you next get paid, if you next get paid. Your album comes out. You record two videos. They give you another uh, half a million dollars for that, and they give you $200,000 towards tour support, and they've also given you some money towards recording your album. You sell a million dollars. Basically, you get $2 million back at this time. Now, that's exactly what you owe the record label <laughs> because of all the stuff that they forwarded for you. So basically, if you're in a position like, or certainly, again, this was in 2000, but if you're in a position where you sold a million records, you've just broke even. Okay, so the record company at that point has made something in the region of they've netted about 7 or $8 million off the back of you. There's very interesting things within the music industry where basically if, if you're a failure as an act, they can often write it into clauses whereby they can write you off as essentially a tax loss. It's an incredibly strange business. Like something like 90% of all artists are expected to fail and to not to recoup their losses in the music industry. And yet for years and years, it's been incredibly profitable. And the same with the movie industry. Do you know David Prowse, like the guy that played, not the voice, but the actor that played Darth Vader? You know, he never got paid for Star Wars because basically... He was going to get a percentage when it went into profit, but due to this really, really, really sleazy practice called Hollywood accounting, the original Star Wars has technically never, ever made a profit. And so David Prowse never got paid. And that's, again, quite a common thing in, in, in these industries. Pink Floyd, for Christ's sake, had to sue to get their money. If Pink Floyd have to sue, what hope does anyone else have? And yet, do you know what I mean? People throw their kids at this industry. I mean, this is one of the things that that, that is that was certainly exposed in An Open Secret, that documentary about paedophilia in, in Hollywood. A lot of the paedophiles that were exposed in, in that particular documentary were managers for children, you know, agents that worked with children, there were, you know, directors that people that worked with kids, supposedly there to be sort of, you know, guidance to them. But... No, you know, people like Bob Villard. He used to manage Leonardo DiCaprio and Toby Maguire. If you basically later convicted for child porn and lewd acts on children. He's a Hollywood photographer that worked with Michael Harrow. Michael Harrow was one of the founders of the Screen Actors Guild, and he'd have youngsters over to stay with them for acting jobs and abuse them. This is the Marty Weiss was manager for your actors. He's the person that allegedly, well, pretty much definitely rate Corey Haim and he was a manager for young actors and therefore he worked in an industry where basically look you know it's like an agency we'll get your kids these parts blah 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 send them over to us you know we're helping your kids become the stars of tomorrow and they'd be abused over at his house and uh, this went on for years and years and years so that's the thing it happens it's horrendous but why is it coming out I don't know I'd like to think that basically because Society doesn't tolerate this stuff, but I don't really believe that. I mean, for example, like 
Corey Haynes made noise about John Grissom and Marty Weiss. Um, he's named those two people as being abusers. And I don't think anything's been done about it seriously. Like, it's very interesting that those two names haven't been pilloried in the same way that other people have. Do you know what I mean? There's always going to be people that are escapist of Casey Affleck. I think because he's won Oscars recently, like he's not been sort of approached in the same way. And there's been horrific stories about stuff that he's done. It's a strange one. It it, it is very odd. Yes, it is interesting how it seems to at least be reaching the mainstream for the first time I can remember at such a high volume. But it's also kind of like the Red Scare that just labeling someone as a sexual predator is enough for them to be blackballed. And none of this is going to trial. Like you said, there really is only the court of public opinion in these cases, which is powerful. But it just seems like there's definitely an operation going on there. Scams and schemes as always, I'd say. So I wanted to also get into your latest exploration of the Manson murders. It's a saga that I was always suspicious of, never really dug too deep into until I was preparing for this interview. And there are a lot of threads that I just had no idea about. And your book is super extensive, but could you remind the people of some of the cliff notes to the official story, and then maybe we can pick it apart a bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, the official story is that this convict called Charles Manson came out of prison in 1967, aged 33, went down to Haight-Ashbury, and somehow managed to ingratiate himself with people at Universal Studios, get himself a harem of young girls and a bus to travel in. And he would travel up and down the West Coast before ingratiating himself with a rock star called Dennis Wilson, who was the drummer in the Beach Boys. He basically was introduced into the music industry. And a gentleman called Terry Melcher, who was the son of Doris Day, was apparently later convened to perhaps record an album for him at the behest of Dennis Wilson. But he started freaking everybody out and basically he believed that he was Jesus and also the devil and apparently would use sex orgies and the use of LSD in order to control his family because he strongly believed that a war was coming, a race war was coming down that he called Helter Skelter. This was going to be an apocalyptic war between black people and white people in which the black people would win. Now, the cult that was surrounded by Charles Manson, as is described by the prosecution, would retreat to the desert and hide in a hole in the ground called the bottomless pit, the sort of underground cave system, until their numbers swelled to 144,000. And then they would come out of the ground and take over the world from the black people who wouldn't be running it particularly efficiently because they'd never had the chance to, to do that before. So was the belief. Anyway, this is all going quite swimmingly, except for the fact that basically Terry Malcher thinks that his music is rubbish. And so rejected by the music industry, Charles Manson decides to enact Helter Skelter himself by killing a load of white people in such a way that would basically, they would think that the black people had killed them and therefore Helter Skelter would kick off preemptively. It's all a little bit silly and convoluted. He apparently went to the, the house of, or sent people to the house of Gary Hinman, a friend of theirs, to get some money to go and uh, stay in the desert. This didn't go very well. He ended up being killed. In a separate incident, Charles Manson himself had ended up shooting a black drug dealer called uh, Bernard Lots of Papa Crow. He believed him to be dead and felt that this was going to be bad for him. Basically, according to the prosecution, he sent his acolytes out on one night to the former home of 
Terry Melcher, the producer who had wronged him. And the people that lived there, well, it was Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, but Roman Polanski was in London trying to get a film started. And the people that were there were their house guests, uh, Jay Sebring, uh, who was a friend of theirs and former boyfriend of Sharon Tate, and Wojtek Bukowski and Abigail Bolger, who also used to stay there quite a lot. There was also a lad called Stephen Parent who was visiting the caretaker who lived in a little house just round the back. And all five of these people were murdered by Tex, Susan Atkins, um, Patricia Cronwinkle, and Linda Kasabian was apparently just an idle bystander that didn't do anything, and she later became a material witness for the prosecution. The following night, they went completely at random to a house that was owned by a couple called the Labiancas and murdered them before retreating back to first the Spahn Ranch, which they lived on, which was in Chatsworth, California, and then later moving out to a ranch in the desert called Myers Ranch. Basically, they were running a stolen car ring and stripping down cars, turning them into dune buggies, and the police got wise to this and arrested them for this. When they arrested Susan Atkins, they discovered that she had been at the scene of Gary Hinman murder, and so they questioned her on other murders. It soon became apparent that she or she confessed very, very quickly to being at the scene of the Sharon Tate murder and being the actual murder of Sharon Tate. And she was given immunity if she basically told the entire story to a grand jury. She did this, but very, very shortly afterwards, she decided that she changed her mind and said that she'd been coerced into saying this, at which point the prosecution basically put forth Linda Kasabian as the material witness. And she told the story of Charles Manson, the court leader, who thought he was Jesus, thought that this race war was going to come down and so had sent his followers out to kill these people in order to kickstart this apocalyptic race war, essentially to get back at society and the music industry that had wronged him. Well, that's the official story anyway. It is quite a long story. I apologize. <laughs> no worries, man. That's a great breakdown and clearly it is a tangled web. And I think a lot of people see the wide range of connections between Manson and the entertainment world, as well as the drugs and what seemed to be the trafficking of women or at least prostitution. And they think there's probably some very revealing threads there, but it seems so hard to separate the truth from the fiction. It's not surprising that with so many operations and rings seemingly at risk of being exposed that there would be a containment strategy. And that is the cover up, right? It seems like a containment strategy is exactly what we see here, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be quite honest, initially, my thought is that the police didn't actually want to, didn't want to solve the crime. They lost evidence. They didn't make really obvious connections. They really dilly-dallied. It wasn't until they were basically publicly embarrassed by two sets of people. One was a group of reporters that basically found the bloody clothes that had been abandoned by Tex Watson and the uh, raiders at CLO Drive. And the second was a boy called Stephen Weiss who had found the gun that was actually used at the murders and he turned it into the police. And he'd been promised a reward. And basically when his father phoned up to, to find out what was going on with this, they told him that they'd actually lost the evidence. Well, the father, he knew somebody that worked for a newspaper, and so he says, well, I'm not having this. I'm going to go to the newspapers and call you out on your incompetence, at which point they mysteriously found the gun. And at this point, Vincent Bugliosi was pretty much forced to concoct a reason for this whole series of murders uh, going down that would be believable without actually exposing any of the, of the real motivations behind it. To be quite honest, there's four theories about Manson, about the whole thing to do with, uh, with 
Charles Manson himself, his followers, or such as they are, and the murders, and also his connections to celebrities and stuff like that. The first is the basically the standard Vincent Bugliosi helter skelter theory, which is the what I told you before. The second theory is the one that's promoted by Ed Sanders and to an extent Dave McGowan and various other people, that Manson was actually involved in a satanic cult that was perhaps in some way connected to the Process Church of Final Judgment, which was a offshoot of the Church of Scientology that had some ideas similar to some of the things that Manson has said or was reported to have said, and that, that was the actual real reason behind the murders. The third theory is one that is put forward by Nicholas Shrek and also by William Scanner Murphy, that basically the whole thing was nothing really to do with Manson. It was a pretty grubby and straightforward drugs murder, and all the people that were involved were drug dealers, and it was just too much of an embarrassment to expose this because of all the sort of celebrities that it would have been involved and so they were forced to concoct a ludicrous explanation for these crimes. And then the fourth theory is one that's put out by Maggie Brussel and touched upon by a gentleman called Adam Go-Rightly, is that basically as part of something called Operation Chaos, Charles Manson was an MK Ultra mind control victim that uh, was basically set upon society and programmed to arrange these killings in order to demonize the free love movement, the hippie movement, and any sort of anti-war political movement that might be tangentially connected to the, or seem to be connected to those particular groups. So what I did with the book was basically, first off, try and get an accurate timeline of Charles Manson's life by getting as much information and as many sources as I possibly could and mashing it all together in a timeline going from the murders up until his imprisonment, up until his sentencing, and then starting from his birth going up until the trial. And once you do that, you can start to sort of test these theories by putting them up against them and, and, and having a look at it. And an immediate one was that basically, well, the prosecution's lying for, for two reasons, right? Well, for several, for, for dozens of reasons. But first off, the material evidence of the crime scene does not match the explanation that was given at trial. It does not match the explanation that was given by Vincent Bugliosi and, and is popularized as, as the real way that the murders went down, who was there, what happened, etc., etc. One of the main sort of proponents of the prosecution theory was that on a specific night, New Year's Eve night, 1968, Charles Manson was at a bonfire giving a speech to his seeming acolytes, and Paul Watkins said that it was at this specific time that he said, now is the time for Helter Skelter, this year we're going to basically ramp up Helter Skelter. This is the first time that he was told about this apocalyptic race war. The only problem with this is if you look at the, the actual physical evidence, the facts, at that specific time, Charles Manson was six hours away enjoying a very, very salubrious um, New Year's Eve party at the home of John Phillips, who was the leader and songwriter for the pop group The Mamas and the Poppers. So he couldn't possibly have made that speech. Interesting, man. Yeah, so it's obviously a very complex story overall. But I guess once Susan Atkins, one of his followers, was being held for the first murder, she was visited by some high-priced mob lawyers that basically got the ball rolling on crafting their sensational cult narrative to distract away from those other aspects that might expose the interests of the people that 
these two lawyers might have really worked for, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that, that that's entirely the thing. This is one of the most ludicrous aspects of the whole story. I mean, say what you want, but anybody is... Let's take it as read that the prosecution story is true. The guy still deserves due process. And prior to the trial even taking place, Calabar and Caruso, these two high-priced lawyers that usually dealt with drug dealers and mafia associates, had basically, for no money, decided to help Susan Atkins on the understanding that she made this fantastic confession about all these celebrities that were going to be killed and what went on that night and life under the control of the cult leader, Charles Manson. And not only did they, they get this confession and make her say this in uh, the grand jury before the trial started, they also serialized it in the Los Angeles Times. And then later, it was publicized in a book by Lawrence Schiller called The Killing of Sharon Tate. This book was available and became a bestseller before the trial started, which, again, Let's take it as read that the prosecution case is accurate. That's still grounds for a mistrial. There is no way that you can get a completely unbiased jury in that, that circumstance. If we're talking about high-priced lawyers and mysterious high-priced lawyers, the whole case is littered with it. Tex Watson, who escaped away back to Texas, I believe, although I may be incorrect about that, when he was hiding there awaiting trial himself for the murders, but was actually sort of being held in a prison or a jail cell, a local jail cell by his cousin and visited by his mom and his girlfriend daily and brought him food packages and his girlfriend was allowed to stay with him in the cell. So it wasn't particularly hard going whilst the Manson trial was, was going on. And he was visited by Dawson Delane, I believe, again, that I may have got those particular names wrong. But these two, again, incredibly high-priced lawyers from Beverly Hills that had claimed to have spoken to him 35 to 40 times prior to meeting him that year and seemed to have some evidence that they'd been involved with him. Why this seemingly penniless kid that had been given everything up to be part of a cult as the prosecution came, why he even had the money to go and see these lawyers makes little to, to no sense. Um just prior to his release in 1967, I believe it was 1967, it might have been earlier in the 50s, actually, Charles Manson was visited by a very high-priced Beverly Hills lawyer called George Shibley. And I was recently in contact with the lady that runs the Truth on Tate Labianca website, a very nice lady, and she told me something that I didn't know about that, that George Shibley was later convened to be one of the lawyers that works on behalf of none other than Sirhan Sirhan, which is, again, hmm, very, very strange all these connections to somebody that is seemingly just a criminal. Man, yeah, it's super interesting all around. So I get that Manson was running drugs and pimping out women, which makes him a friend to the Hollywood crowd, no doubt. Yep. But if the helter-skelter scenario is made up, if the culty, processed church-type aspects are made up, and there's nothing to the Operation Chaos angles, what was the motivation behind the Tate La Bianca murders? Was it just drug-related infighting that got out of hand? I'm afraid it looks very much like that. You know, when I first got into this, I really, really was a big sort of proponent of the um, process judge, final judgment theory. I thought that was really, really strong. I thought it was fascinating. And because of the connections to people like Bill Mentzer, who was, you know, mentioned in The Ultimate Evil and probably was one of the Son of Sam shooters and his sort of tangential connection to the case, I thought that was really strong. 
essentially he was a drug dealer that was knocking around at the same time and he was friends with Mama Cass. He also was friends with Lainey Jacobs, who was friends with Dennis Wilson. He used to stay at Dennis Wilson's when Charles Manson was there. Uh, and he was friends with Robert Evans. And Robert Evans was a good friend of Sharon Tate. Robert Evans basically phoned Sharon Tate every night. Oh, sorry, visited her every day that Roman Polanski was away, whilst, whilst he was away, to make sure that she was safe. The only time he didn't visit was on the night of August the 8th, when, for some strange reason, he just decided to phone her instead. And she informed him that she wasn't going to be staying the night. She was going to go and stay at her friend Sheila Wells's house. And then 15 minutes later, she changed her mind. 15 minutes later than that, text turned up with Susan and Patricia and Linda. And the rest is history. What's strange is at the trial, Doris Tate was approached by Sandra Good, another friend of Charles Manson. And she basically implored to us, we're really, really sorry. We, we didn't think that Sharon was going to be there. We phoned ahead and we were told that she wasn't going to be there. Now, that's very interesting when basically... You know, Robert Evans, I think Robert Evans really needs to be spoken to a little bit more about what he was doing and what he knew about what was going to happen that particular night. But um, what was the original question, Greg? Oh, just uh, what the true motivation was, if it was just infighting that got out of hand, drug related. Yeah, that's essentially what the more I, I looked into it, the more I thought that the best research that had been done on this, the best insight into this had been from William Scanlon Murphy. And the best research that had been done on this has been by Nicholas Schreck on his book, The Manson File. I don't agree with, with everything that he says, but I think he gets an incredible amount right, particularly the stuff that lines up with what William Scanlon Murphy said. And essentially what happened was, Jay Sebring was a drug dealer. He dealt cocaine to people like Peter Sellers and Paul Newman and Steve McQueen and all the sort of same clients that he used to cut hair for. He was like, he was basically... The person that popularized metrosexuality to an extent, as much as he made it perfectly acceptable for very macho people to take pride in their appearance in a way that they'd not been allowed to before. But he also dealt a huge amount of drugs to these people, which he got from a bloke called Joel Rustow. Joel Rustow was a Genovese connected mafia guy, and he turned up on the night of August the 8th with a huge package of cocaine to Joe Sebring. Basically, what happened was just prior to this, Wojtek Pukowski, who was a friend of Roman Polanski's and was trying to break into the movie industry but just really wasn't doing particularly well, had decided that drugs were perhaps a better avenue. And he'd approached these three Canadian drug dealers who'd got hold of this big batch of something called MDA, which is kind of like ecstasy or MDMA, but not quite. He's called fairy dust sometimes. But basically, he'd got hold of a load of this and decided that he was going to set himself up as the sort of MDA baron in Los Angeles. And he'd sold a load to Linda Kasabian. Linda Kasabian was basically painted as being this sort of really, really nice girl that had been brought in and sort of like manipulated by Charles Manson. She was only at the ranch about two weeks, if that. And she spent all the time with Tex. Before she even turned up, she stole 300 tabs of acid and $5,000 from her husband, actually from her husband's friend, and gave it to Tex. She didn't give it to Charlie. She gave it to Tex. She was known to be probably a drug dealer as well, and was not a terribly savory character. Tex was essentially a drug dealer. Tex wasn't really involved with Charlie at all. He didn't live on the main part of the ranch. He was able to stay on the outskirts of the ranch because he traded a truck to Charlie for him. Charlie didn't like him. Tex was a rent boy that was basically a small-time drug dealer that was knocking about with and trying to ingratiate himself with Dennis Wilson. 
And when Charlie basically rolled up and um, started staying at Dennis Wilson's house, Tex just so happened to be there, being part of the sort of ongoing party that, that was basically going on at Dennis's house and Elvis's house and Mama Cass's house at Cielo Drive. Like, right? Manson knew Cielo Drive. Like, he partied there many, many times. And Tex used to live there with a bloke called Dean Morehouse before. Basically, Tex and Linda were sold a batch of this MDA. And it turned out to be rubbish. It turned out to be particularly poor quality MDA. And so they were really, really pissed off about this. That's why they targeted that house on that particular night, not because of revenge against the music industry. In fact, after the murders, Manson was seen knocking about with Terry Melcher. He knew that Terry had moved to Malibu. He knew exactly who lived at that house. Manson didn't tell them to go to that house. Manson basically told Tex, get some money for Bobby because Bobby had been arrested for a, a deal. Manson owed Bobby a favour. Tex owed Manson a favour. Manson goes, well, it's easy. You owe Bobby a favour. And the favour you need to do is you need to get him out of jail, get some money sent together so that he can have a lawyer. Don't care how you do it. He was at that point, Manson was actually off with a young Jewish girl called Stephanie Schramm in San Diego and didn't get back into the ranch until about 2, 3 in the morning, at which point then shortly after that, the guys came back saying, oh, we've killed everybody. We went over there basically to take their drugs, and it all went wrong. Sharon made a run for it. No, well, basically what happened was, yeah, Sharon made a run for it. Tex split out and stabbed her to death. Stephen Parent saw it, was driving down the ranch so fast that he very nearly went over a ravine. Then he was stabbed by Linda Kasabian and then shot by Tex. Then they shot Jay Sebring and then they ran off. They left Abigail Folger and Wojtek Bukowski alive. How do we know this? Because the police report states that basically Abigail and Wojtek were heard screaming for their life at about four in the morning and gunshots were going off at four in the morning. So basically what happened was these guys who went over there to rob Jay Sebring of his drugs, first they went over to try and break into Jay Sebring's house. J.C. Bree's house backed onto the house of this couple called the Webbers. This is never really spoken about. Basically, it's always spoken about that the, the Webbers caught them using their hose, drinking from their hose. What's not talked about is the fact that the Webbers house backs onto J.C. Bree's house. So the inference that is believed by William Scanlon Murphy, Nicholas Shrek and myself is that basically they were there to try and break into J.C. Bree's house to steal more of his drugs. They went back to the ranch and Manson says, right, so what's gone off? Oh, we've killed all these people. Right, okay. Is anyone left alive? Oh, yeah, probably. Did you um, cover your tracks? No, not at all. Okay, right. So they get back in the car, drive back over to Cielo Drive, at which point they execute Abigail Folger and Wojtek Kukowski, which means that Manson was probably almost certainly a witness to the murders, but he didn't order the murders. He didn't arrange for them. These people were not his acolytes. The very fact that basically... What happened was Tex tried to steal a load of weed from this black drug dealer called Bernard Popper Crow, and he left his ex-girlfriend there as, like, collateral. No, he hated his ex-girlfriend and wanted to get back at her because she'd stolen some money from him. So he just left her there and just ran off. And Bernard Crow phones up the ranch and says, I'm going to burn the ranch down, come over there and kill all the blokes and rape all the women unless you sort this out. At which point Tex says, oh, no, I'm not going. Charlie can't get anybody, including hardened criminals like Danny DiCarlo, to go over there and help him sort this business out that Tex has got him into. Hmm. What sort of a cult leader is that? That can't even direct his own followers, his own, apparently, the, the, his most committed followers, 
to actually get off their arse and, and go and do anything for him. So basically, as I say, this they come back at about, say, 3 in the morning, 2, 3 in the morning, bump into Manson. They go back out there at about 4 in the morning and they finish off Wojtek Krakowski and Abigail Folger and then they leave and that's it. The reasons that they went to the Labiancas the next night are a bit complicated, to be quite honest, and there's still some question marks about it. The reason that Charlie says he went over there, and this is another thing that I do in my book that nobody seems to do, is I've actually sort of gone through the interviews with Charlie and listened to what he said. Now, a lot of what he says is completely impenetrable because of slang and stuff like that, so you need to learn to understand it. Once you do that, but even if you don't do that, there's a lot of... He'll tell you exactly what went on. It's just that basically most people just dismiss it as the, the rantings of a lunatic. He was completely honest, never changed his story as far as I can see, and basically told you exactly the reason that went on. In a, an interview with Hard Copy, when he was asked, why were you there at the Labiancas? He said, I went there to get a little black book. A little black book that basically contained some information that was to do with the mafia and the music industry. And I walked in there and I said to Lino Labianca, I'm here from Frankie Carbo, okay? Give me the little black book. If you don't give me the little black book, you're going to die. It's as simple as that. And then he said the black book wasn't there, so he couldn't get it, so Manson left. And the interviewer says, did you know Lino Labianca? And he started knowing Lino Labianca, but Lino Labianca knew Frankie Carbo. And I knew Frankie Carbo. Frankie Carbo was an incredibly influential mafia figure that Manson just so happened to rub shoulders with in prison in his youth. He also was close to Frank Costello, who was also known as the Prime Minister of Crime. And through his connections with Creepy Carpus, who was his cellmate for a time, he was also introduced into the good graces of Mickey Cohen in order to be able to play music in certain bars in San Francisco and areas like that. Again, the sort of intrigues and threads that run through the Manson case are numerate and often run to a, an infuriating dead end. The murder, again, was done by Tex. Okay, Tex turned up and killed these people. Okay, and the evidence, again, shows that basically he put a dress on over Rosemary Lavianca's nightdress and took her out. The car, which was always left on the drive with an expensive boat on it, was left on the road with the boat still attached and the keys in the ignition, which indicates that basically Rosemary was very hurriedly dressed and taken away from her home, possibly to her boutique, possibly to the supermarket where her husband worked. Because her husband was basically in massive amounts of debt to various mafia members through his gambling, and he'd been stealing from the place where he worked. So that night was the last night that he would have had access to that safe, which is very, very strange. Nicholas Schreck purports to know witnesses and people that have intimated that Rosemary Labianca was actually a drug dealer and she was supposed to deliver LSD to Sienna Drive but didn't have the chance. And this is why Tex was angered and decided to take his wrath out on her. This may well be true. She was certainly wealthier than Abigail Folger. Abigail Folger was the heiress to the Folger Coffee Company and so she was a socialite. So if this random woman who ran a, a dress shop is somehow wealthier than this socialite. Something weird is going on there, basically. One thing that is strange is the main beneficiary of the murders who got between, what's debated is whether she got 200,000 or 2 million, 
and I think the actual real number lies somewhere in the middle, was the daughter of Rosemary Lavianca. After the death of her, she inherited all this money that Rosemary had squirreled away. Years later, Susan Struthers, who was the daughter of Rosemary Lavianca, she turned up under a false name and started trying to plead for Texas release from prison. Only later was it re- like it revealed who she was. And it actually transpires that her and Tex were friends before the murders. Like she actually used to live almost next door to Tex and they used to knock around as friends. And Tex also knew her boyfriend, a lad called Joe Dorgan, who was a straight Satan motorcycle gang member. And they, they were also connected with the various sort of criminal activities of Manson and, and the, the group that was knocking around him. So th- there is a, a distinct possibility that basically Tex had somehow arranged to do this with Susan, but also the evidence looks like the Labiancas were sort of kind of tricked into it. They, they basically, they, it was almost like a sort of a fake burglary where they felt that they were going to get, you know, all this money that was going to get robbed from wherever they were going to get a cut of it, which would go towards helping his gambling debts and such like that. But in the end, they were double-crossed by Tex and Susan that ended up murdering them. I know it's a bit strange and convoluted, and it's by no means proven that, but to my mind, I think that is the most realistic way that it actually happened. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense, and I really appreciate you breaking down that complex narrative. (laughs) But... That pretty much brings us to the finish line, Neil. Always good to stay vigilant and aware. I really appreciate the work you do. Tell the people one more time where they can get your books and follow up on your work if they need more Neil Sanders. Thank you very much. Well, my books are available from neilsandersmindcontrol.com or they're all available on uh, Kindle as well and also from richplanet.net. If you want to get hold of me, you can get hold of me, uh, email me through the website. Or you can find me on Facebook. I know I, I hate it. I sound like a right hypocrite now. But, I am, you know, it, it is a useful platform for contacting people and stuff like that. So that's pretty much it. So, yeah, thank you very much for having me on, Greg. It's always a massive pleasure and uh, a thrill to, to be on. So thank you very much. And thank you to everyone for listening. You got it, man. Awesome stuff. Thanks again. And do take care of yourself out there. All right, all right, all right, people. Hell of a show. Neil Sanders, hell of a guest. And I'm glad I could get him back on because it's been a long, long time. And it was just that fact and knowing how much work he's done on sex rings and pedophiles and mind control and Hollywood that made me pursue it. And he just so happened to have a new book out about the Manson murders, so it worked out really well. Win-win. Personally, I think that first 20 minutes is really worth revisiting because Neil drops a ton of names and connections. My special lady was listening to it and it sent her down a huge rabbit hole of interweaving connections that will make your skin crawl. In fact, we did a lot of the work for you because if you just go through the show notes, there's a lot of those links right there. And I struggled to find a good title for this episode because I really wanted something about data in it just because it's such an underrepresented aspect of the modern digital age, and it is pretty scary, and those parts of this interview went by so fast, but they are worth really considering. I mean, even Roomba is apparently mapping people's floor plans and selling that data. Every goddamn thing is data, and it's only going to get more refined and better at manipulating us on an individual, catered level, 
And that's why I think net neutrality is just a bit humorous. All the major companies put what they want you to see in front of you and subtly make it slightly more difficult to get the things outside of their preferred content. 90% of web traffic is like, what, five websites? And now people want to protest net neutrality? I don't know. I just think if everybody's paying attention to something, you really should look a little deeper because we are such sheep and these games are never what they seem. I don't know. I just think it's an arbitrary buzzword and it's a bit of a red herring. And I'm not saying the internet can't get worse, but this thing is designed as a militarized network from the ground up. It's a bit silly to expect it to care about who has rights to what. But Neil brought up some great points in that regard, and it really could have been a full show on its own. Of course, the bulk of the conversation is a walkthrough of Neil's examination of the Manson murders and all the holes in the story. Another thing the wife was looking into, like one thing I asked about in the Plus show, was this claim that Jack Nicholson was one of the cleaners of the Tate murder scene. And apparently that's pretty well established, but what I also learned... Of course, these murders were at Roman Polanski's house, who famously fled the country over the allegations of having sex with an underage girl. Well, do you know where this allegedly took place? Jack Nicholson's house. So apparently they were pretty friendly. I also think it's just too suspicious that Roman Polanski was out of the country when his wife was killed at home. That is, like, textbook. It's awfully convenient. And I know Neil knows this, and he doesn't find it suspicious, but I'm just saying... Neil is right, though. So much doesn't add up about the official story. And how funny that there's an inner earth aspect to Helter Skelter. I really did not know that. The idea that they were looking for a bottomless pit of Hopi legend, a tunnel to somewhere inside that's habitable. You know, I love that, even if it is just the fantasy overlay. I suppose it's a little deflating to think the mind control and ritual aspects are overblown. But Neil has done a lot of work on these subjects before, so I don't see him being afraid to go there if that's where the clues lead. Regardless, I don't think we've ever really focused on the Manson saga for a Higher Side Chats episode. Now we can say we have, because it is an interesting tale and it does give us a little glimpse into the Hollywood underground. And it's also timely, given his recent passing. So another one in the can. Of course, in the second hour, we got just a lot deeper into Neil's Manson research. Like I had mentioned, we talked about the details surrounding Jack Nicholson as one of the Tate murder cleaners, homemade celebrity porn that was found at the Polanski home. And then randomly, I asked him about the snuff film allegations against Hunter S. Thompson. We got into the Manson crew's operation, stripping down cars in the desert and why Neil would find that telling. And of course, the net neutrality fallacy, the internet is a deep state surveillance and data collection machine. Remember that when you start talking about your online rights and freedoms. I've been kind of having these thoughts and just reading what Gordon writes on RuneSoup has totally confirmed the way I feel. And we capped this plus show off talking about artists and just the churn and burn culture of the digital age. Do sign up for THC Plus if you like the show. Just treat yourself to a nice end-of-the-year gift. You can also sign up through Patreon if that's your jam. Or just pick up a t-shirt at thehiresideclothing.com. If you're into these subjects, I find it really hard to believe that you wouldn't like at least one shirt on that site. And of course, you could just share these episodes. That would help me. Thank the guests for their appearance. I'd be really thankful for any of those things. So... Three more shows to close out this year, two return guests, and a new but awesome one. I think you're going to be pretty satisfied. That's it for me today. 
Your move, Mafia meddlers, darkness peddlers of the elite underground, and deep-level data mining cabals of the digital age. Your fucking move. You know the plan has always been to hack your brain. MK just trying to drive you insane. They'll explode your heart if they think that's what it takes. You think I'm answering the phone? Well, I ain't. You gotta keep the curtains drawn. Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home. Well, you're not. You should tape the mail slot. And baby, if I seem withdrawn, let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked. Maybe you should know that. The trauma affects you like it does everyone. It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become. They want a pat down and a swap. Don't you see what's going on? Well, now you know. You're better keeping on your own, cause you can see the masters lie too much. Oh, baby, you can only trust yourself. And if you think the system's out of touch, it is, and you can only trust yourself. I hope you know the elite aren't your friends. They'll suck out everything from you in the end. And if for some reason you think I might be wrong, I wonder where you got that opinion from. You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot And baby, if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that The trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan It's what the world's become Yourself, cause you can see the man. 